everyone, and welcome to our new podcast, where we will feature audiobook excerpts and interviews with a variety of authors. My name is Kathy Logan, and I'll be interviewing author Katherine Coleman, who has so far written seven Regency romances, all of which have high reviews on Amazon and Kindle Unlimited. Without further ado, let's get started. When did you start writing stories? Um, now, I literally, I started writing stories 10 years ago, but in fact, I've always loved writing from when I was at school, from when I was at primary school. I loved writing essays. And uh, through my my professional career, I worked, I was a civil servant and I worked in for the New Zealand Embassy in Bonn and I worked for a large firm of solicitors here in Dublin. Um, all of these required very careful drafting and redrafting. So I suppose you could say I have been writing all my life, you know, so that when it came to starting to write fiction, I had a very, very, very solid foundation to start on, to stand on. And I started writing then, I don't have the exact date, about 10 years ago, I had had a bout with breast cancer. And when I was finished over a year's treatment, I decided I would take early retirement. Now, it takes a little while for the brain fog to clear, you know, after chemo and all the rest. But, but when I got to that stage, I had always wanted to write fiction and I was literally, if not now, when. So that was when I started. Oh, that's awesome. And then, so you said that you like writing fiction. Like when did you realize you specifically wanted to write like Regency era fiction? It was Regency from the very beginning. Um, I suppose I was first introduced to the Regency when I was at school and it would have been through literature. So it would have been Jane Austen, of course. Um, and then the romantic poets, Wordsworth, Byron, Keats, Shelley are all from the Regency. And there were wonderful essayists as well, like Charles Lamb. And then the Georgian essayists who went before them, like um, William, like Hazlitt, for example. So we did all of that at school. And I just loved the style and the writing. In those days in Ireland, you didn't have, a, you know, a small group of six set texts each year for the exams. But what they did was they put out big anthologies of prose and poetry that were valid for many years. It was very useful if you had a family with a lot of children because you could pass these books on down. And then each year the curriculum would select, make a selection of the prose and a selection of the poetry. So you had like a book maybe the size, a big book, three or four inches. But you didn't have to do it all you would do. Now, I'm really totally off the top of my head here. What? But shall we say that you did maybe 12 poems and you did six prose extracts? That would be the curriculum. And then on top of that, we would have had a play by Shakespeare. And uh, as well, all of that, on top of all of that, we would have been writing essays. So we like had, a, at my school, we had a written assignment as homework every week 
in each language. I had four languages. I had English, Irish, Gaelic, French, and German. So one week you would write a free essay on a subject, whatever the teacher assigned. Um, it could be philosophical. It could be pure imaginative. And then the other week, the assignment would be directly related to one of the texts. So as I say, I had a lot of... Um, you know, practice in writing from very early on. And these were corrected as well. You know, the teachers would correct them. So you would, you know, apart from, you know, obvious errors in terms of grammar, maybe. But though he had got a very, very good foundation in grammar in the preceding years, I'm talking about the last two years now of my school, uh, of secondary school. The um, But they would also, you know, commend you if you phrase something nicely or maybe pick out a phrase that could have been expressed more felicitously. So you were learning really from the beginning. So that was how my first introduction really would have been through the literature. Then Regency, the next thing then would of course been George Hare, who was still alive and writing. I'm talking about the 60s. And she was still alive and writing then, and you got a new book every year, which was wonderful, <laughs> plus the whole backlist. I think every reader will agree there is nothing better than discovering a new author with a huge backlist, you know, because it's just wonderful <laughs> <laughs> to be able to settle in there. So that would have been the next thing. And Georgia Hare, I think every writer of Regency has to tip the hat to her because she really created the Regency genre. And on top of that, she set a benchmark for research. I am in awe of what she achieved without the internet. She used to go, she lived in London and she used to go to the London Library and she would borrow 10 books at a time. And, uh, wow, you know, do her research. But then if she had... Uh, found something of interest. There are wonderful illustrations. That was one of the things that surprised me when I started my research into the Regency period was the huge amount and variety of coloured illustrations, of hand-coloured illustrations that you had from fashion prints to illustrations of books to cartoons and satirical caricatures. But if Georgette, I've seen... Um, a copy of one of her notebooks. She kept very detailed research notebooks. But if she found a plate, a fashion plate with, say, 10 different bonnets, she actually drew and colored them into her notebooks herself. You know, because, mm -hmm. I mean, she would. She started writing, I think, in the 20s and the 30s. So we're not talking about nowadays, it's so easy for us to snap a photograph and we have it on our on our phone or to make a photocopy or to scan something on your printer. She would have had none of that. I mean, photography was there, of course, but it would have been your Kodak. And then you would have to take your negatives, your film to be printed. And it would have been very expensive and there would have been delays. So this was the way Georgia Hare did it. So they would have been the, I really, what made me really first look at the Regency. And then it is such a fascinating period. I think of it as the foundation of our modern world. In 1800, 
we had the Act of Union that abolished the Irish Parliament and united created the United Kingdom of Great Britain and and Ireland. Now, as you know, we're still living with the results of that day here in Ireland, very much so. Um, Then we have the Napoleonic Wars, which ran from 1803 to 1815. And really, the Battle of Waterloo could have gone either way. So we have to ask ourselves, supposing Napoleon had won, how changed the history of Europe and indeed of the world. And the final very, very interesting thing is the Anglo-American War of 1812. America won and essentially England or the Great Britain, you know, had to withdraw completely from the idea of gaining the American colonies that they had lost, of regaining them, if that had gone differently. So these three events all really are are so important and they were happening at the time and at the time people were dealing with the results of them and with the consequences. A very obvious consequence that um, at the time before the Act of Union, Ireland had its own parliament in Dublin and the Irish MPs and the Lords, the peers, they met in Dublin. So there was a very vibrant Dublin season as well and political life in Dublin. Well, with the Act of Union, all that was shifted to London, to the Westminster. So first, of course, it had an effect on society in Ireland. It made worse the problem of absentee landlords of the people owning the big big estates, not but not spending much time in Ireland or on their estates, and leaving middlemen like stewards and land agents to um, run the estates. And for a lot of these landlords, they were only interested in the profit that they could get and the rents they could extract from the tenants. Then another small thing, they ha- had to cross by boat to, uh, to Hollyhead, um, and the Isle of Anglesey, where Hollyhead is on, was still island at that stage. So having taken the boat from Ireland to Hollyhead, they would cross then the Isle of Anglesey, and then they would have to cross the Menai Straits in another boat, right? And bad weather, and you can imagine what the roads were like. So one of the things that happened within the first 20 years was the building of the wonderful bridge over the Menai Straits, which completely shortened the length of time it took to travel between Dublin and London. A small consequence, but important for the people at the time. So these are, are the things that we just look at and I just found all of this fascinating. Then you have as well, I mean, I've spoken about the literature. It's also, you've had the the beginning of the Enlightenment in the 18th century or into Romanticism now. You have people, you know, appealing for the rights of man. You have the after effects of the French Revolution, which frightened the upper classes in England but gave the lower classes a few ideas. Um, You had Mary Wollstonecraft writing a vindication of the rights of women. You had women raising their voices against the patriarchy. And uh, you also had a situation that 
there was um, in Great Britain and Ireland, because of the barricade between the continent during the continental wars, like internal tourism in England developed hugely um, and in Ireland as well. So there were people would go to the Lake District and they would go to the Lakes of Killarney because they couldn't go to the Alps. Now, of course, in 1815, it's, it starts in 1814, when Napoleon was defeated and suddenly the continent was thrown open again. Then they all started travelling abroad again. But the other side of that was that um, French goods were able to be imported into England again, which they hadn't been before. That had a knock-on effect on a lot of the industries, and in particular the industries around fashion fashion so the manufacture of fabric weaving of ribbons which were hugely important in the regency um you'd know zips you know you had your you either had buttons or something that you could tie it could be what they called laces like a shoelace but not brown but lovely and white and you could lace up your corset with them or you could you would tie your stockings on with um with a ribbon as a garter that was the original garter was just a piece of ribbon that you tied either under the knee or over the knee below the top of the stocking. Um, so because you didn't have, well, what here in Ireland we call suspenders, I think they call them garters in the US, <laughs> right? But the original garter was just a piece of ribbon. So there was a huge industry for ribbons, especially around Nottingham. And with the influx then of ribbons from France, because, I mean, after all, French style was always regarded, if you like, as having that little bit more, the ooh-la-la, you know, <laughs> and people were delighted to have something different. So that and a lot of the industries, well, if they didn't quite collapse, there was certainly a big recession, which led to, um, uh, you know, to uh, calls for political reform and protests and that all gone on. When I talk about the Regency, I talk about roughly from 1797 when the Prince Regent, the later Prince Regent, married. And his father had already had one episode of madness but had recovered from him from it. So there had been talk of a Regency previously. Now the actual Regency was 1810 to 1820. When that was when he uh, the Prince of Wales became the Prince Regent when George III was originally finally declared mad and a regent put in, and then he died in 1820. But um, the period of the influence of the regent really would be 1797 to 1830 when he died. So I kind of look at that whole period. I don't take an arbitrary, well, if you're writing Regency, it has to be 1810 to 1820. You know, you can take the overall, what they call the extended Regency is what I look at, because I think it gives you the larger picture. And then you can even, I mean, I haven't done it, but I know some authors have extended the reign of William IV from 1830 to 1837 because he was the Prince Regent's brother, brother. So he would still have been, you know, very much in that style and manner. He didn't change much. The huge change was 1837 when the, um, the young 17-year-old Queen Victoria came to the throne. And she reigned till 1901. So that was... The rest of the 19th century was Victorian. And by that stage, 
you already had steamboats and your trains. So the Regency, again, it's the end of the age of the horse. Now, horse and carriages went parallel really on to the beginning of the 20th century. But the fact that you could get on a train and, you know, be somewhere maybe in three hours that might have taken you, and I'm going now with the original um, uh, slow train, slower train times, but still it would have taken you a whole day to get there by horse and carriage because you'd have had to change horses about every 10 miles, you know, because you couldn't put your you know put your you know your horses to the um you know to your carriage and expect them to, to trot along all day they just couldn't do it i don't know if you remember have you read mansfield park by jane austen i that is one i have not read unfortunately no okay fine <laughs> yeah anyway there's a, situ a situation in that where fanny the heroine in some disgrace she's been living with her uncle and aunt for several years as a as a she grew up there as a teenager, really. She isn't, she's turned down a very um, advantageous proposal of marriage. And she's been sent back in some disgrace to her parents, to live with her parents, who are not well off at all. Her mother and um, Lady Bertram are sisters. Lady Bertram made a really good marriage and the sister married... Um, and Mr. Price, and who was, you know, not a great match at all. So anyway, she, they sent her, the, you know, I mean, the Bertrams, they are, she's in trouble, but they not, I don't mean that in trouble in the sense of being pregnant, but, you know, they're angry with her. Um, but they do send her in their, in their own carriage. They don't make her take the public transport, which would have been the, the coach. But after two changes the first two um changes and after that then the horses are brought back to the bertrams and they go on with hired horses for the rest because that would be the most that their horses could do really in the day without risking damage to them and you know making having her make the the journey in one in one day so the ad ad advance of steam had a huge effect like on transport within Britain and, well, all over Europe, really. I'm not sure when the first trains came to the US. And also steamboats, when the people weren't dependent on sail, you know, so that um, boat navigation and that would have been more reliable. You weren't, you couldn't be literally caught in the doldrums, you know, and waiting for a week for the winds to pick up again. You would have to stay the the um the steam as well. I think initially they may well have had a sort of hybrid, you know, because if you have the the like you know light today when we think of it for another reason, wind is free. So if you can assist your steam with save, you're using less coal and burning less energy. So that's a very long and involved thing as to why the Regency really interests me. And then finally, the fashion is, of course, beautiful. You know, it's we can wear it today. And every so often the Empire Line, as it's described as, comes up again. And um, in fact, in the 60s with the mini dresses, the there were two styles. One was the Empire line for the small busted, and there was the Princess line, which 
is essentially shape is given not by a seam under the bust, but by two long seams that ran from the bust down to the hips, um, two long darts down the front of a dress. And they would kind of take in at the waist, you know, they would, you know, they would go out at the waist and then taper away again. So you got your nice fitted dress. I think it was called after Princess Alexandra, but I'm not sure. So anyway, very long answer, I'm afraid, Cathy. You should cut me short when I'm waffling on like this. No, I have fun listening. I have fun listening to your answer. That was a very good answer. And like it helped me too to realize like how much because I didn't really know how much history really occurred around the Regency era. Cause I feel like before that I just assumed like, oh, it's 1810s to 1820. But knowing yeah. now it's like it's a whole extended period. So thank you for telling me that because now I know a lot more <laughs> about the Regency era. So yeah, so thank you so much for that great answer. Good. But, um, I was wondering if we could, I wanted to ask you specifically about um, your your stories themselves and the characters. Sure. Yeah. And I was wondering, um, what is like the inspiration for your characters? Like, what do you use to like um, create like your main characters? Like, maybe like specifically Rosa and Julian from um, mm-hmm. your book I'm currently reading, <laughs> A Suggestion of Scandal, which I love that title, by the way. <laughs> oh, that's good. Now, it's usually with me something, there's a trigger. It might be a what if. I'm not sure how far you are on in the suggestion of scandal, and I don't want to go in for any spoilers. <laughs> but I read about a real-life scandal involving a governess. I won't say any more, but there will be something similar will happen in a suggestion of scandal. And I wondered what happened to her afterwards. You know, my youngest son, who is a wonderful, better reader, and uh, it's very interesting because he never heard of Regency or read any Regency before he read my book. So he comes to them with a very cold eye, which is very good. But he commented once about my books that I like to know what happens after the first happy end. Um, And I'll come back to that. But in Rosa, with Rosa and Julian, certainly the first thing was, well, okay, this is the governess. She's caught up through no uh, fault of her own in this scandal. What happened to her? So that was how I started. Um, Then I'm more of a pantser than a plotter, or shall we say my first draft is very extended plotting. But before I start right chapter one, I do some work on the characters, on the main characters. You know, I kind of think about them, who they are, what their situation is, what their backstory is. And uh, with Rosa, it was a question, apart from anything else, of her plausibly meeting a, a hero. If you know what I mean, that because a governess situation was very difficult. She was neither fish nor flesh. She wasn't a servant because she was paid, but she was an employee. But she would she was a lady, so she would dine with her um, with her employers, and she would be at their entertainments. Now, a little bit, you know, always kind of 
waiting for the nod to go and do something or to a little task, but she would be one of the guests, not one of the servants. Um, so like a poor relation, and in fact, a lot of them would have been put, well, they were certainly somebody else's poor relation. And because that was why they would be out earning a living. But um, you could have had poor relations acting in roles like that within their own families as well. So I decided that probably the easiest or whatever would be, and I, I don't even know, I can't tell you, it just happens, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. So uh, Rosa's charge, Chloe, when the book opens is 16, and her father is going to be 60, and there's going to be a big house party. And Chloe is essentially going to come out. Well, sort of. She's not having a London season yet. She's too young for that. But she will be at the party and she won't be, you know, up still up in the schoolroom. So I thought, well, if Chloe had an elder brother, say a step, uh, a half brother from a first marriage, mm -hmm. he would be of an age then for Rosa. And he would have known Rosa, you know, all the time. You know, Ro Rosa has been with Chloe for 10 years. So that was part of the backstory that I had, you know, how she came to be there. And she's been with Chloe, you know, and he's known her all the time, but she's just been out there in the background. So something has to happen for him to see her dif differently, right? Um, and also because she knows him and knows him well, you know, she is past the stage of being wary of him as she would have been in the beginning and she would have been warned to have been very wary of sons in the family and, you know, and not only the sons, but her employer, but any males in the family that they would, you know, if they showed an interest in her, it would not be a good interest. But she's known him 10 years as well. So that gave me them. Uh, and then... And it comes to me then as I write. It's the only way I can say it. I know that there are some writers who do hugely elaborate sketching of characters and plotting and have very elaborate plans and everything. But I found, like I tried that in the beginning, but I found that the spontaneity was going into the, the, the plotting and not into the writing so that when I you know opened my notebook and said okay like I should be doing this now I found it didn't flow as well as when I was doing the first one so I said no I'm just going to get myself started and see where it takes me I all my books are that they happen in the same time period, they happen within the same social set. So obviously, characters that appear in one will appear in another. Maybe somebody was a small part in one will have a major part in another. And I have a couple of um, people who appear in all of them as minor characters. But as well as that, everybody intermarries. Obviously, you know, because that's just the whole point of the season. Make a good match for the girls. And I see we've not, uh, 10 minutes left now. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the... Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. So I do very elaborate family trees. 
for my characters, for my main characters, going back three and four generations. Okay. Uh, yeah, and, you know, with and I can feed in then, you know, so that there will be intermarriages and people can discover that they are cousins and all this sort of thing. So that helps a lot. It gives me a very good structure. And if I'm looking for a character, I can go back to my family trees and I can say, oh, yes, I can take them. You know, I don't have to start working on them from the very beginning. And when I do that, I go back to any other books that they have featured in and go through and read what I said about them so that I have continuity. So that would be, I suppose, one of my secrets. Yeah. Yeah. That would, yeah. Thank you for um, and yeah telling me that. And it's interesting too, because um, it's honestly, it seems to be like a very different method or like authors, like on how they like develop their characters. Like you said, like it's more. Well, you see, I'm, yeah. Yes. I'm fortunate or unfortunate. I don't know. Is that I am entirely self-taught. I haven't done any creative writing courses or anything like that. So I, but because of my professional background before, I'm well used to writing, you know, so I was able to develop the way that suited me best. And one of the things that I learned from a book by a novel, Dorothy L. Sayers, called Gaudy Night, that she wrote in the um, in the 1930s. A character is trying to write something, and she can't for various reasons. And she says to herself, what do I want to say, and why can't I say it? And once you're clear about that, what do you actually want to say? What do you want to happen in this scene? How does somebody react to what is happening? That's what you have to say to yourself. Put yourself in the character's position, you know, um, and then you kind of you can think, well, how would I have felt? Now, or do I know anybody where something like to whom something like that happened? And again, like I have lived a long life, so I have a lot of experience in that as well. And yes, you do get tiny little echoes of things that I have personally experienced or my friends have or whatever, but I would never draw on somebody's experience to the extent that it is obvious or can be recognised because I just feel you shouldn't do that. But there are things, and when I'm drawing, writing about children, I think back to when my own children were young. So, uh, yeah, but, you know, it's a question trying to put yourself into their say well if that were me if somebody said that to me how would I react and you can have different possibilities you know you can be completely cowed by an unkind word or you can snap back so you have you then you have to say to well what what would my character do in this situation and very often then you know the I say like it's nearly as if I'm listening to the dialogue as if somebody is dictating it into my ear and I'm I'm typing it out. It just the dialogue just comes then. But that's me. Thank you for listening. Tune in to part two of my conversation with Catherine Coleman next week.